On today's episode, we speak to Dr. Quan Yuan, who's a group leader at the Institute for Molecular Bioscience at the University of Queensland. We discuss his experience working with multiple spatial technologies to analyze skin cancer, and we get his thoughts on data analysis and its best practices. And lastly, he shares his wish list for both spatial instruments and the larger research community. This is the Spatial Navigator podcast brought to you by Nanostring. Here at Nanostring, we believe that spatial genomics is at the forefront of discovery and translational biology research. We present the work that researchers are doing in the field and share our initiatives to engage and support them. Good morning, Quan. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. I really wanted to speak to you after listening to your talk at Multiomics. I'm so happy to have you on the podcast today. Thank you, Nathan. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Could you tell us about your background and your journey into research? Yeah, so I am originally from Vietnam. My journey into research is rather smooth and straightforward. So uh, from my very early time in my school years, I was kind of uh, academic oriented. So I was enrolled in mathematics program. And then later in my high school, I delved into biology. But at the same time, I was still majoring in mathematics. And uh, during that time, uh, I already had the plan to do research in my life because uh, I'm always uh, curious about uh, learning new knowledge. And also, I do uh, like doing brain exercise. So I think research should be the perfect profession for me to follow my liking. So after my school year, I was lucky enough to get a scholarship to go to Australia to do uh, undergraduate at the Uni of Queensland. I majored in uh, biotechnology, focusing on genome engineering. And uh, after my undergrad, uh, I worked for two years using statistics to study climate change adaptation. So something completely different, but still data analysis. And then I went back to Uni of Queensland to do my PhD on the transcriptomics of uh, virus and host interaction. Host PhD, like multiple options to go to different continents to do postdoc, but I decided to go to Rican, uh, working with Professor Piero Carnici about transcriptomics of non-coding RNA. After two years, uh, I got a fellowship to go back to uh, Brisbane, uh, working with the SIRO on functional genomics. And then I landed back to uh, Uni of Queensland to work on single cell and started my own a research group. So that's briefly about my research journey and how I embarked myself into research. I find it so interesting that you've gone through a flurry of different things from biotech and genome engineering to climate change adaptations. I think that would have to do with perhaps the environmental evolution. Am I right? Yeah. So- so it's about the fluctuation in terms of the data. For example, some year we have a super hot, super dry, some year we have a flood and how that pattern can be recognized and what are the strategies for people to adapt to that. Am I right to say that you're studying the fluctuations in the environment, not so much the species adaptations? Yeah, in the temperature and weather pattern. That's so interesting. So yeah, with the variation in things that you've studied, you've also been around multiple organizations, as you just mentioned, like Riken and CSIRO. How have they differed from one another? And what, I, I suppose, are your takeaways from each of them? Yeah, 
So the two organizations, both research organizations funded by the government, and uh, they are all organizations in terms of innovation. If I remember correctly, they are both in the top 20 most innovative organizations. So they do share a lot of commonalities. For example, the research principles and the quality in their research. But they also have uh, quite a lot of differences, especially because they are in two different countries. So there's a culture differences. What I am most impressed with uh, my time working at Rican is uh, how people doing deep basic science research. For example, uh, when the people work in chemistry, it boils down to the structure of the molecule, how when we perform this experiment, we mix two um, reagents, what happened at the molecular level. So really deep into the basic science, and that is the root of, of invention and of the high quality in research. And at CSIO, what I am uh, most impressed with is about the application aspect of the research. So I was working on the, using genomics for breeding the cattle. So it's involved developing statistical model that use the genotyping data of the cattle and correlate that to the yield in the meat quality or meal quality. And uh, the results of the research can be directly uh, applied to the farming industry. So, but I do enjoy my time in both organizations and I learned a lot from there. Even then, between the two, you described one that's still going down deep into basic science and one more is very application specific. How do you marry the two together? That's an interesting question. They sound like very different, but in fact, they all apply the key research principles. Like uh, we need to ask uh, the right questions and from there design the appropriate uh, research uh, design and approaches, uh, collecting data and uh, making sense of the data and draw the conclusions that are scientifically valid. From there, we can either discover new thing or we have uh, new applications that are useful for the farmers. Can I ask, within the single cell realm, we hear a lot about cell and tissue atlasing. To you, why is atlasing so important? I think atlasing is so important because our current understanding about the body is still very limited given how many cells we have got in the body, like trillions of cells, and we only understand about hundreds of cell types. But given that large number of cells that are available, the reality should be much more diverse uh, than what we understand at the moment. So the atlasing is the key for us to make the foundation to understand the body better. And uh, from there, using the understanding of the healthy condition at the baseline, we can then infer or detect the disease and abnormalities in patients. So it is extremely important, both in terms of advancing our understanding, but also in terms of applying to healthcare, for example. Yeah, the picture that I'm having is sort of like you're trying to create that baseline and using that as a foundation for understanding disease. And in a sense, if the atlas is incomplete, if there's a population that has some variation that's not included in the atlas, we sort of have gaps in that foundation where we won't be able to build anything up on. Yeah, I think there would still be some gaps in our understanding. But compared to what we knew like 10 years 
before what we have acquired in the past 10 years in terms of understanding about cell types is already exponential. I think it's also really interesting in your question when you mentioned about cell atlasing and tissue atlasing, they are actually different. And I think it's important to recognize that differences. That is, I think for the tissue atlasing is where like the spatial tissue contact into the atlas. So when we think about the cell atlasing, it's more like looking at the building block of the body. And now tissue atlasing is like putting those blocks together into a higher organization, uh, but a functional connection of the blocks. So I think that is really a good way you put it, like cell atlasing and tissue atlasing. So they are not one, they're slightly different. And then talking about all the information and the data that we have that's exponentially increased, what is the place of tools like machine learning? Yeah, just recently we all heard about this chat GPT, right? It sounds like something that's going to affect the life and the work of so many people. I think in genomics, uh, machine learning is very, very important because genomics has uh, some of the biggest data sets on Earth. So like uh, it includes sequencing-based data and the imaging-based data as well. And both sequencing and imaging data are really big. On top of that, there are the metadata like patient records, experimental conditions, and so on. So the data is really big. And with that big data, it needs a machine learning techniques to make the most out of the data. In parallel, we also have a very strong development of the hardware to run the machine learning algorithm much faster and also to store the input and output data. So it seems like we are living in the area where machine learning is playing uh, already an important role in genomics, but that roles are getting even more and more important. Yeah, so that's my belief. And I, I think that's already happening and we, we are seeing it more and more in the coming years. In your presentation last year, you showcased a number of technologies that you've had access to and used. Could I ask what your biggest takeaway was from the Cosmics SMI data? I was lucky enough to have the Cosmic SMI Chalkiptomics data as part of the early technological assess program. So at the time of seeing the data for the first time and compare that with the other data types, uh, what I liked uh, the most is uh, how it reflects the real biology. And so the system that I was working on was the skin cancer and uh, the biology in the skin architecture is very clear in terms of how different layers got separated, but also the distributions of uh, cells at the high level of details are also complex. So in one hand, we have a very good ground truth for the cell distribution for the known architecture. On the other hand, we also have this complexity of smaller but equally important cell types that are located at different layers of the skin. And I believe the cosmic SMI data that we 
got, it reflected both that ground truth and the complexity of the biology without too much effort that we had to spend on the analysis side. Of course, the analysis side is also a very interesting area to look at. For example, in that project, we look at a cell-to-cell interaction. And uh, that was the first data set that allowed us to uh, look at uh, interaction at scale and resolution. So scale in here means that we could look at uh, the interaction of over 400 ligand and receptors at the means for the cell-to-cell interactions. Before, with other technology, we could look at as maximum like 10 or 20 interactions. But with uh, this one, it's like more than 400 uh, ligand and receptor pairs that we could look at. And also the resolution means that we can zoom in and then we can see the neighboring cells that co-expressing the ligand and receptors. And uh, that's very impressive uh, for me when looking at that uh, type of data and analysis. Could you explain to me what the significance of visualizing those receptor interactions is and how is that an evolution from what you've been most familiar with single-cell RNA sequencing? Yeah, I think visualizing the interaction is crucial because seeing means believing. And before that, usually we kind of done a lot of modeling based on the gene expression or protein expression and a statistical test to show that the expressions come from a likely interaction between the cell types without the interactions uh, uh, what we observe in the data wouldn't be like that. So that is a kind of general approach to infer the cell-to-cell interaction. But that's pure modeling and an inherent limitations of that is the false positive detection for the cell-to-cell interaction analysis. For many cases, we see that every cell has a potential to interact with other cells using any pairs of ligand receptor that we input into the algorithm that definitely produce a lot of noise and false positive detection. With the cosmic data, by measuring the expression of the ligand and receptors as a means for cell-to-cell interaction, and at the same time having the spatial location as a constraint for the algorithm to detect the real interaction, we can reduce a lot of false positive detection and that results can be visualized as well because now we know where the cells are, which ligand or receptor the cell expressed and that in a way is a visual confirmation of the algorithm. So I think it's the, uh, very necessary to have uh, the visualization of the interaction to confirm the statistical inference from the data that we measure to predict the interactions. We've talked about what you like. What about two features that you'd like to see improved or changed on the Cosmics SMI? Okay, yeah. I do have uh, the wish list. And I think the feature that the Cosmic SMI already has, it's just not available widely yet. That is uh, to perform protein and RNA at, at the same time. So if in one cell we can measure, let's say, 1,000 or more RNA, and at the same time for that cell we measure like 50 to 100 proteins, that I think is an ideal data set for us to know the cell type 
cell subtype, cell state, and also the signatures of the molecular signatures of the processes that happen inside that single cell. So that would be a great data set to have. My second wish list, and uh, I have mentioned that to some of the nanostring colleagues, that is uh, to have uh, the metabolites that could be measured by cosmic SNI. If we can do that, so now that truly uh, uh, multi-omics at another level of linking the molecular signature to the phenotype because the metabolites are reflecting the phenotypes of the cells and the tissue and the organism. I know that is not easy, very challenging, but I am hopeful and I have a chest in the IND team at the nanostring, I think it might come uh, in the near future. Could I know to you, what is the difference between seeing both RNA and protein on the same slide versus, say, a serial section from the same block? Yeah, so we are actually working with that serial section data in the past two years. It's work, uh, but it's suboptimal. So what we've been doing is to map the protein data from one section to the transcriptomics data in another section. And after that mapping, we essentially transfer the protein signal to the RNA, making the artificial or the pseudo tissue where we have both RNA and protein. And from there, we can analyze the RNA and protein at the same time. And that uh, mapping is not accurate because we know that the cells at two sections are different cells. So then uh, it, the mapping is only accurate at the level of tissue region. For example, we will still be able to map the cancer region from one section to the cancer region in the adjacent section, but not a single cell from one single cell to the other single cell. So that is suboptimal. However, it also creates some flexibility. For example, with that strategy, people may just keep the block. They may do the transcriptomics first, and in couple a year later, they come back, they do adjacent tissue with the proteins that they have discovered from the chunk mix, and then they do the mapping. So that kind of flexibility is also uh, an advantage of this approach. But ideally, I think the best one would be from one cell, having both protein and RNA uh, data. When it comes to data, where do you see open access playing a part in advancement? Yeah, I think open access is a key practice that the researchers should try to provide. The reason is because of at least two key reasons for reproducibility. Like if a project reports a result using the data analysis, but the readers of the publication from that project, for example, cannot validate, and then it will be very difficult to use the results. The second reason is the open access allows researchers to combine data from different sources and make the best use of the relevant data that available to them. This is especially important in this area of single-cell and spatial technology, where it's still quite costly to generate a large amount of data. So the feasible approach would be to uh, make the best use of data that other researchers and uh, make available. So I think there are many other reasons to promote uh, open access as well. But these are the two reasons that I think are important to mention. I guess adding on to that, 
this also talks about the importance of raw data because you can't have normalized data sets with different levels of normalization, right? Yeah, so that standardization is very important because uh, a lot of the data from single cell spatial technologies that are available to researchers are variable in terms of the quality and also how the data got generated. So if the steps that come from raw to processed data change, that add another layer of uncertainty in how the process data will be different to the process data in other studies and how that process data would reflect the real biology from the source material. That can be very different if the researchers apply different strategy for processing. Say, for example, if it's come from imaging data and the researcher applied a certain threshold to filter out background noise and keep the real signal, if that threshold change a little bit, the level of signal is going to be very, very different. So if possible, having access to the raw data is the best. But that's not always possible, especially for the patient data. Sometimes there's a commitment with the ethics policy and the data cannot be made available. But whenever possible, I really like to have access to the raw data. I kind of want to circle back a little bit. In the last few days, Nanostring has put out the 6,000 plex and 120 plex protein on Cosmics. How does that make you feel and what do you think is going to come out of it? I think having the new world of protein and RNA, I think that's perfect. That's one of the key items in my wish list. And having more RNA in the panel, that I think is also very important because it allows the discovery aspect of the project to be less biased. So the more we can measure from the cell, the better idea we can get about the biological process that's happened within that cell without inputting too much prior assumptions about uh, whether these genes are in or not in that cell. And uh, having 6,000 genes per cell, I think, uh, and I believe that uh, it, uh, the 6,000 genes have been well selected from the entire tome by the team. And so I think that uh, the level of content that we can get from there uh, may not only be six times more compared to the previous 1K flex, but it may be 10 times more. It's like a, it's not linear increase. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. I haven't got that uh, type of data yet, and I'm looking forward to playing with, with some of the latest data sets. Yeah, when I was speaking with Joe in December, he was saying that he hadn't touched the 1000 Plex since the middle of 2021. Hopefully, we'll be able to test drive that RNA data set soon. But I found that interesting what you mentioned. If we're limited on Plex, then we're still in that implied or inferred range for cells. We're not getting the full picture and sort of having to draw conclusions on what we already see. And I found that quite interesting. Yeah, especially when we are aiming to detect a new cells or a new pathways that can be nature for a certain type of rare disease, then uh, the markers may well be uh, very, 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 very rare types of markers that uh, we don't often include in our panel. Yeah, I just found that it's also interesting in the same way that you mentioned about receptor and ligand interactions. We're moving from inferred to sort of closer towards absolute. Yeah, 
That's right. But that's already like a big revolution in, in terms of the markers that we can measure. Uh, thinking about traditional cell markers, people may uh, well be used one or two cell surface markers to define the, an immune cell type. But now by measuring like 6,000 genes, we would have a much higher confidence and uh, options to um, find the cell identity better and also to stratify them into the subtypes. So for me, that's already like a revolutionary advancement in terms of the the complexity. Yeah. Yeah. You sort of like led up to the next question that I had. In cancer, we see these subcategories, like in the case of skin cancer, melanoma, squamous, and basal cell. I also hear this from diseases like ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, which is the episode that just dropped earlier this week. Do you foresee that all this typing will become more granular and sort of like even then we have further subcategorization? Yeah, I think that is uh, for sure. So the subcategories of skin cancer is already uh, a lot more than three. However, the classification is based on different criteria. For example, how the tissue look like and how the disease progress. So these are the criteria that people use to classify the cancer types. But with the molecular profiles, especially with the spatial information where we can define cancer microenvironments, I believe we can define many more of the molecular subtype. So it's not like a, a macro level classification, but it's more down to the molecular level. And uh, those are important for not just our understanding, but also for the patient and uh, the the treatment of the patient, because uh, it is at that molecular levels where we understand the drug effect and uh, the resistance uh, to drug or the risk of uh, cancer progression. So I think we will see uh, many more of the subcategories and those are defined uh, by the molecular signature molecular, cellular, and microenvironment signature. Do you have any advice for people who perhaps are considering delving into research? And then could I also get some advice for perhaps young investigators? From my own experience, I think it is now an ideal time to do research in um, tissue biology, given the advancement in the technologies, as well as the development of new analytical tools like machine learning approach, uh, deep learning, artificial intelligence, and uh, hardware. So the applications of research can be huge. Uh, It's not just uh, in cancer space, uh, but it can be uh, in uh, patient's disease. For example, the tissue biology has proven to be already very important for the COVID uh, pandemic, uh, where we uh, wanted to understand the infection, the mechanisms of the virus when it entered the lung and whether it has an effect to other tissues in the body. So there are plenty of opportunities that are available for the researchers in, in the field. And uh, I do have a, a warning that uh, doing research is, uh, is not easy. So, but uh, if uh, there's a passion and uh, there's a, a, a strong motivation, I think uh, this is really a good option, uh, like a good profession to follow. What improvements would you like to see in research in general and then in the instruments that will come? In research, in the area that I'm working on, that is uh, 
the tissue uh, biology and cancer research using the single cell spatial technologies. I would like to see the technologies that allow to measure many more patients. So uh, when uh, we can include thousands of patients uh, in the project, uh, that is where we can find some very impactful findings that can come back to help patients. And I also like to see the uh, strong collaboration between uh, researchers and clinicians so that the access to patient samples as well as the interpretation of the data and the uh, way to bring the research outcomes to the applications can uh, be promoted at a much uh, faster and more efficient uh, way. In terms of instruments, I do wish that there are mechanisms for labs to share the access to instruments because the uh, instruments themselves are not affordable to every individual lab, but the ability to make the best use of the instrument to generate data continuously can be achieved if there are mechanisms that the lab can have uh, the share access to certain instruments. Yeah, so that would be like some of my thoughts about that. I think that these are all happening, uh, but it can be improved. I guess we've talked about Cosmics a lot this episode, but I think as you were talking about being able to screen, say, a thousand patients in a project, would you say that Geomics can lean into that with its ability to do tissue microarrays and specific ROI selection? Perhaps if you already know the marker that you're looking for and then have those tissue microarrays annotated by a pathologist, would that be something that you foresee being possible? Yeah, I think that's possible at the application step where we already know the markers, then we can narrow down to fewer protein markers in the GOMX and we increase the number of samples and the speed for data collection. The tissue microarray, uh, I think, is a really good way to uh, increase the sample size. There are certain uh, technical details that we need to consider. For example, the size of the um, uh, biopsies. If it's too small, it might not be so useful. So I think for the discovery part, where we don't really need to increase the sample size to many thousand samples, but having like a few hundred samples for the discovery and another smaller set for the testing phase, I think that would really promote the discovery of new markers and validating the new markers before we go to the massive application to thousands or hundreds of thousands of people. Okay, thank you, Kwan. Thank you so much for copying onto the podcast. It was a pleasure speaking with you and I look forward to seeing all that will come out of your lab. Thank you. Looking forward to working more with the nanostring and interacting with the community. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Spatial Navigator podcast brought to you by Nanostring. If you would like to know more about Nanostring's product and panel offerings or speak to a member of our staff, please visit nanostring.com. You may also get in touch with us through LinkedIn, Instagram, or Twitter. The links to which are in the description.